Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Yeah, one more, just before I get to that, but one more thing on that. I've been, uh, I've been known with my kids, because what you're trying to do is try to figure out, okay, are they really hurt here or not? And usually, I mean, it's a little boo-boo and it's no big deal or whatever. And so to take their, if you can just take their mind off of the bleeding for a moment or the whatever, it, it, it just is gone, right? So I'm, I'm that compassionate father who pulls his pocket knife out and says, here, come here, I can, I can take care of that for you. We'll just take the arm off, right? No, daddy, well, the, the greater pain is worth, you know, sacrificing for the little pain. So, I'm sorry, what were we going to say? Uh, well, so similar to what he was saying, we use the three Bs as far as emergencies and interruptions. Yeah. So, if no one is broken, bleeding, or being taken, <laughs> it's not <laughs> Wise words, wise words all. So, thanks for sending those in. Those are helpful for us to sort of understand that we're not the only ones going through this thing called parenting. Uh, it's also good for us to kind of grab little pieces of advice. Um, that are useful in our own parenting styles as well. So uh, let's pray, and then we'll get into the things that really matter about this course uh, in addition to the good uh, anecdotes. Father, thanks for this morning. Thanks for the time to come together and to study your scriptures, to understand what your word has and what it means for us in our lives. Would you give us guidance? Uh, Would your Holy Spirit be among us, that you would uh, give us interpretation and understanding, that uh, it would fill my mouth with good words to be able to be spoken here, fitly spoken to uh, these parents. Strengthen each of us for our task as parents, that we would be excited to be parents, uh, that we would be reminded that by your good gift, you have provided us with children, and that that has been uh, no cosmic accident, but has been purposeful, intentional, that has provided us with children to be parents, and so there must be something uh, to that, that you have allowed us to have that, and so equipped us to be parents. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, look, in my contrast uh, to find bad parenting advice, and in my quest, I'm sorry, to contrast bad parenting advice with good, I once again returned to Google. And this time, Gordon Training International responded to my Google inquiry. Uh, and uh, that is apparently a human relations training organization. Gordon Training also has this newsletter that they publish online. Uh, The one Google pulled up for me this time is entitled, Do Children Need Authority? I'm not sure what their specific focus is over there at Gordon Training International, but it seems that they're aimed a little bit at teachers, a little bit at parents. Uh, The bad guys in their newsletter are the uh, advocates, and not just any generic advocate, but what Gordon calls dare to discipline advocates. I think that's just a a gentle swipe that they're taking at the guy who wrote the book, Dare to Discipline, Dr. James Dobson, which I'm sure there are great opinions all in this room, both for and against James Dobson. I I think he's a good guy. I was raised as a Dobson kid. Uh, Dare to Discipline advocates, Gordon argues, constantly urge parents and teachers to exercise authority in dealing with children and youth, and they make make the claim that children need it, want it, and will be happier for getting it. Well, they go on to explain in their newsletter, with a little bit of charity anyway, that those who counsel parents or teachers to use power-based authority characteristically caution that it must be loving authority or benevolent authority. The newsletter goes on, explains further, to underscore their argument, dare to discipline proponents usually claim that children will respect authority, look up to it, yield to it, rely on it. 
It's puzzling, then, they say, why they worry so much about youngsters rebelling against the authority of their parents or teachers, and they rail against the breakdown of authority among today's youth. It's amazing how rarely the question is posed. This is, this is fun. The question is posed this way. If kids respect, want, need, and yield to adult authority, why then do we see among youngsters such widespread rebellion and resistance to it, such hostility and lack of respect for the adults who use it? Well, I went further into the website because I, I, now I got my curiosity peaked. Uh, Dr. Gordon Thomas is the guy apparently from Gordon Training Institute, which incidentally, why would you name it Gordon Training Institute, not Thomas Training Institute, but that's... I don't get that. That's things that bug my brain when I think through these things. He has a blog entry on the same topic of uh, parenting or children in authority. He rehashes a little bit of what the newsletter has already put together uh, in the, in, in, on the website. But he ends with this. He says this. In short, children want to limit their behavior themselves if it becomes apparent to them that their behavior must be limited or modified. Children, like adults prefer to be their own authority over their behavior. Well, I would guess that's probably true, right? I, I mean, I think we all want to be our own authority, but he wasn't finished. He's, his parting advice, for which I assume he must get very handsomely paid to give this type of advice, says, what children have a right to expect, I love that, what children have a right to expect, however, is that they always be told when their parents are not feeling accepting of a certain behavior. This is quite different from wanting parents to use authority to set limits on their behavior. There's a lot that I find wanting in this advice. And for starters, at best, this is concentrated on what we called last week behavioral modification, on, on regulating the behavior of our children. We discussed this last week, and it's, uh, this behavior modification concept sells a whole lot of books uh, it actually sometimes feels really nice to be able to deploy. In fact, there, I think there are some wise things to be using in terms of behavior modification, but it, it misses the mark if that's the entire basis by which we measure our parenting. If we're only using behavior modification and those principles, we are missing the mark as Christian parents entirely. Rather than behavior modification, us as Christians, what Christian parents are working towards is shepherding the heart of our children. That was last week's met, uh, uh, class. If you missed it, I think they've got a podcast for it. You can go back and listen to it all. I'll give you my notes. If you really want to be bored that way, you can do it that as well. But our goal is not to be mo uh, modifying the behavior of our children. It is to be shepherding their hearts towards something better. The, the bad, that sinful behavior of our children, it can't be fully corrected by behavior modification because... Their bad, sinful behavior is who they are at heart. Unless their heart is modified, they will continue to be sinful sinners who sin. That's who we are at our base level. If we don't deal with the heart, we will miss the whole point of parenting entirely. Uh, it, I think what's worse here, in terms of Dr. Gordon Thomas's advice here, he sort of mocks these dare-to-discipline advocates in the process, but he, he, ex he exposes the, the, the fault in his own thinking, the, the wrongness in his own thinking. As he sort of mocks these Dobsonites, he says, if kids like discipline so much, if they find comfort and security in parents who exercise that authority in an almost a lordly manner over their children, then, well, heck, why do we have such rebellious kids? Right? I mean, if they're so good at this authority thing, why is there any rebellion? Well, Dr. Thomas, I got a pretty simple answer for you. 
Go back and listen to last week's message or last week's lesson. And let it remind you that we have rebellious children. Why? Because we are rebellious people. That's who we are at the heart of who we are as humans. We have rebelled against the holy God. It's not that much more difficult to rebel against a parent. If you're willing to rebel against the creator of the universe, why wouldn't you rebel against your parents? So, of course, we're going to have rebellion in our, our children. So none of us in this room ought to be surprised that our children then gravitate toward rebellion to authority because in our sin, we all rebel against authority. You and I, as much as our children, we rebel against the authority of the universe. And so, uh, and, uh, so do our children with no instruction manual about how to do so. They just naturally, from the womb, come fully equipped as rebels to authority. That's who they are. Well, we've been looking at Ted Tripp's book, Shepherding the Child's Heart. Uh, he has a brother named Paul David Tripp, so we've got to keep these guys in mind. This is going to be really important today to keep these two brothers separate, because I'm, I'm going to quote from these guys a lot today, both of them. Something must have gone right in that household, because they've both written books on parenting, and they're both really excellent books on parenting. At least the Paul David's book that I've just started reading is, is a very helpful book. Paul David wrote a book called Fort, uh, Parenting, 14 Gospel Principles That Can Radically Change Your Family. Well, principle number eight is entitled Authority, which is also the subject of our lesson today. Paul David explains Dr. Thomas's problem this way. Uh, sin makes us want our own way. Sin makes us want to set our own rules. Sin convinces all of us that we know better. Sin causes me to want to do what I want to do, when, I, when and how I want to do it. Sin makes me resist being told what to do by another. Sin really does insert me in the center of my world, the one place that I must never be because it is the place for God and God alone. What Dr. Thomas doesn't deal with is the sin problem, the heart problem. We, like our children, are what uh, Paul David Tripp says, uh, calls self-appointed little self-sovereigns. Boy, if there's ever been a better description for our children, I don't know what it is. Self-appointed little self-sovereigns. Man, that is, that is spot on what our children are from the womb. They are self-appointed little self-sovereigns. And some of these little self-appointed self-sovereigns grow up to be bigger self-appointed self-sovereigns, right? That, that doesn't shake right away after you hit puberty. They become you know, little minor dictators over their own hearts. No amount of behavioral modification can change any of that. Sure, it may limit our rebellious nature. It may kind of cabinet together a little bit, but it's not going to change our natural human sin-driven rejection of authority. It just, it just won't. No amount of behavioral modification will deal with that heart problem. But thankfully, we're told in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15, it reminds us that Christ's sacrifice for his people solved the behavior modification problem. There's no longer are we on any self-salvation mission, modifying our own behavior just enough to merit our salvation, our favor with God. That's something that we cannot accomplish in and of ourselves, and we don't have to be on this self-salvation mission. Instead, Christ died in what it says here in Corinthians, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Christ's sacrifice solved the problem of our self-salvation. So, Christian parent, you are an authority under authority, right? Uh, whether the world recognizes it or not, one day all of us are going to bend the knee before the almighty maker of this world. 
all of us will bend the knee to that authority, that the authority of the universe. That same God who created all things, who created your kids, who created you, that same God has given you authority over a very little bit of his creation. And he's given you that authority over that very little bit of your creation so that you might shepherd your sons and daughters to become your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why God has given you this authority. Uh, They will, in this world, submit their lives, your kids, they will submit their lives to King Jesus, or they will answer to him in the next. My baseball coach in high school used to say, Coach, do I have to go do this thing? You don't have to do anything. The only thing you have to do is appear at Judgment Day. Well, that's true. You had to appear at Judgment Day at some point, so your kids are either going to submit their lives to King Jesus right now, I was either going to submit my life to Coach Kiefer then, or they're going to answer to King Jesus in the next, next life. There's no escaping that judgment day for anyone. So exercising authority over our children is critical. Why? Well, then let, let's, let's ask the Tripp brothers to answer that question. Paul David says this way. He says, to reject authority is to reject God, who is the authority over all authority. And rejection of God never has and never will go anywhere good. You reject God's authority to your own peril. You may be able to reject human authority and have at least a little bit of independence, a little bit of liberty in your life, but eventually that's going to catch up with you. Rejecting all human authority is going to eventually land you in not a little bit of trouble. Uh, But you cannot, no matter how hard you try, you will never be able to reject God's authority forever. Whether it catches up with you in this life, it will catch up with you in the next life. You can't reject God's authority in all of your life. Ted, Paul's brother, says this. He says uh, on the importance of authority, if you are unsure about the nature and extent of your authority, your children will suffer greatly. They will never know what to expect from you because the ground rules will be constantly changing. They will never learn the absolutes and principles of God's word that alone teach wisdom. At the heart of our attempt to exercise our authority over and to our children, the point of all of that is not to insist that we be obeyed because we are so wise and beautiful and incredible, but because we are about teaching the absolutes and principles of God's word that alone, above all things, produce wisdom and teach wisdom in our children. Without exercising our God-given authority as parents, our children will not only fail to learn the proper way to submit to human authority, that's a huge part of what we do as parents, but more critically, their hearts cannot be shepherded. And if they cannot be shepherded, they will not themselves submit to, God, to the God who created them, nor put their hearts in submission to his word so that it can be further refined over the, sanctification, over the sanctifying process to which we are all called. One of the saddest things I think I ever see in, is parents who completely abdicate their authority. Parents who just reject this idea that I am an authority. And if they don't reject it with their mouth, they reject it with their, their lifestyle. They, they just simply abdicate the fact that they are authority. They, they desperately want to be loving. I mean, who doesn't want to be loving towards their kids, right? They want to be seen as caring and nurturing towards their children. All of us want to appear as nurturing and caring. At least most of us do. I'm probably the exceptional jerk that doesn't really care whether or not I'm perceived as particularly caring half the time. We hate to make our children upset. No one likes to see our kids bothered or throwing another fit or or whatever it might be they they see another meltdown and it's enough to drive away any parent to 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 try to bribe or cajole or trick use any behavioral modification tip that they can to avoid well the the plain embarrassment that they may suffer in aisle eight at the kroger store 
or, or, or just get through one more day because, goodness sakes, I can't handle this one more fight over the beans on the dinner table. They'll do anything to modify that behavior because they just want to have, at least for that moment, some peace in their lives. To put this rather bluntly, all that, this abandoning of authority, let's well, goes back to what I said in our first lesson, that's sissy stuff, right? That's sissy stuff and parenting ain't for sissies. We're called to have an authority with our, our parents. And if you are a parent, and many of you in this room are, guess what? You don't have a choice in this matter. God has declared you to be the authority over your children. You either, either respond in obedience to that command on your life, or you reject the giver of that command and his authority in your life. You don't have a choice. God has declared you to be the authority over your children. Choosing to reject that title, to forgo the exercise of that authority, indeed to insist that your authority as a parent be recognized, understood, and obeyed, is yourself to rebel against the authority of God himself. You reject his commands. You reject God's authority. So we must be authoritative, but we must not be, we cannot be authoritarian. Listen to the Trip Brothers here again. Here's what Ted says. As a father or mother, you do not exercise rule over your, over your jurisdiction, but over God's. You act at his command. You discharge a duty that he has given. You may not try to shape the lives of, of your children as pleases you, but as pleases him. Paul David, which I don't know is the older or bigger, not only are they good parent book writers, they also have tremendous facial hair in the Tripp family. They've got these incredible <laughs> walrus mustaches. Uh, but Paul David says, uh, you must never exercise authority in an angry, impatient, abusive, or selfish way. Why? Because you have been put into your position as a parent to display before your children. This is lovely. Listen to this, guys. Because you have been put into your position as a parent to display before your children how beautiful, wise, patient, guiding, protective, rescuing, and forgiving God's authority is. Any thought that exercising authority is something to be done with a heavy hand and not a humble heart should be dispensed with as soon as you read Paul David's comments there. You, in exercising your authority, are modeling to your children. You are showcasing to your children who God is. We are the under-shepherds of the good shepherd. Our authority is delegated, as Paul David Tripp says, is, it is ambassadorial. It, it is on behalf of someone of higher authority to ourselves in, in, in exercise in his proxy, but it is nonetheless God-given. It is God-directed authority, the use of which you and your spouse will answer as parents for the use of in eternity. You may choose to bury that gift of your authority in the ground and be driven from your master's presence when he returns to ask for an accounting of it, or you can choose to exercise it, invest it, and cultivate it, and receive what we all hope, I think, for our parenting will be the commendation of God himself. Well done, good and faithful servant. This is a gift no less than a command by our God. He has imbued you with this authority that you and I are not guaranteed that our children will respond in obedience to our parenting or even that they will submit their hearts to Christ because of how we exercised our God-given authority really is of no moment. We don't change hearts. God does that. 
We don't take those stony hearts out of their chest and replace them with hearts of flesh and cause them to obey all that God commands. We don't do that. We have a, a role in that. We have a participation with what God, his divine spiritual surgery, his open heart surgery on our children is doing. We certainly participate with that. Uh, we, we, but we're not the ones that actually change the hearts. God does that changing. I, I like to, to say that there's not a mind in this world that is dumb enough for me to convince of anything. My job is simply to present to them the truth that is laid bare in the scriptures and say, conform your life to this. But even if we don't change hearts, and God is the one who does, it does not absolve us of our duty to be the God-provided presence of authority in the lives of our children. God loves your children, says Paul David Tripp, and because he does, he has placed them in a family of faith so that you can be his tool of convincing, forgiving, and transforming grace. Well, that kind of changes your mind on parenting, doesn't it? Dr. Gordon Thomas has got nothing on that. If God has given you kids, he's done so intentionally, and he's decided to put them in your family, in a family of faith, so that you can be his tool of convincing, forgiving, and transforming grace. You are the picture of grace in your children's lives. Do not underestimate, Christian parents, the beauty that God has put children inside of your family, that he has created you to be a family of faith, and the great blessing that your children have of having that family of faith to be, uh, to be a part of. All right, enough of Paul David Tripp and his brother, and their great mustaches, and, and uh, Dr. Thomas, let's look at to see what Scripture has to say about all this. Turn with me to Ephesians 6, what I think is one of the greatest and the most beautiful passages on parenting in all of Scripture. While you're turning there, and, and I do want you to have that open in front of you, it'll be helpful to have it in front of you as we go through the rest of this lesson. Let's put the, this, uh, these verses in context a little bit. Uh, so let's start from the wide and get to the narrow, right? Uh, Ephesians is a New Testament book of the Bible. Uh, that should tell you, at least by its placement in the New Testament, that we are in the church era. We are, we are out of the, uh, the nation of Israel and the Levitical demands that are imposed upon them in the Old Testament. Uh, inside the New Testament itself, we're past the Gospels. So we're, we're past Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and all the, the other parts, even, even the book of Acts. So we know that this is after the ministry of Christ, on, on this earth anyway. And it follows the giving of the Holy Spirit to the believers. So we're, we're in the new church age right now. And we further know that it is in the section of Scripture that we call the epistles, which are intensely practical parts of Scripture. These are letters that are written largely by Paul. Not all, but most of them are written by Paul. Uh, this one in Ephesians is written by Paul. And it's written to instruct Christians about the Christian life. How do you live practically in light of the gospel that has been announced and, and ordained by Christ himself and his atoning work? Uh, how are you to live in light of the gospel to which you have been called? These are the focuses. This is the focus of these epistles. Ephesians specifically deals with, as, as uh, Guy Prentice Waters puts it, uh, with the Christian life in its personal, corporate, and cosmic dimensions. That, that, that's, that's a mouthful, right? That, that we're, we're, uh, the Christian life and its pers personal, corporate, and how, what does it mean for you personally? What does it mean for you as a church? What does it mean for you in eternity? What does this Christian life mean for you? Well, the first half of Ephesians, uh, the, the Apostle Paul is concerned really with what we call the indicatives of the gospel, which means what has Christ accomplished for his people uh, and how has that united them 
united them to him through faith, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of, not of works. You know, that, that's, that's part of what Paul's writing at, just telling you, hey, this is how God has changed you and, and what his work did for you. That the first half of Ephesians, I mean, that, the first chapter, you've got like a, a chapter-long sentence that outlines the blessings that are waiting for us but because of the finished work of Christ. I mean, this is, these are beautiful things that Paul writes, but the second half is where we're going to find ourselves. Paul focuses upon what we call gospel imperatives, right? We've got the gospel indicatives, what happened because of Christ. Now, what does that mean for you and I? What is the activity of the Christian, uh, what is the, the activity the faithful Christian ought to be engaged in in light of the gospel? Because you have been changed by these indicatives, now what does that mean for you? How should you then act? So, starting in chapter 5, we start seeing some of these imperatives coming out, right? Uh, we hear Paul explaining that the Christian that is saved by grace through faith should be imitating Christ. You should be imitators of Christ. You should abandon immorality practiced by the world and, and walk in a way that is uh, marked by wisdom. And in, among you as Christians, you should be marked by, by your unity. This is a lot about chapter 5 in the first part anyway. At the end of chapter 5, we receive some very, some very specific instructions with regard to uh, this glorious picture of husband and wife. Uh, this is worth its own lesson. We may come back to this at some point in this class if we have some time, because I think it's really important that we understand, especially in our society today, the importance of husband and wife within the context of being parents as well. Uh, that has some serious implications for us. We'll get to some of that today, but maybe we'll come back to this. Uh, that relationship has specific gospel-transformed duties that we learn is a profound mystery meant to point us to God's relationship with his church. And so that's, that's worth its own study. But that's Paul saying, hey, look, the gospel has changed things in you and in your lives, and so your marriages have to be different than they were even before the gospel. They have to be different than what the world around you is preaching that it should be. So there are changes that your marriage would be, uh, that should come to your marriage as a result of the gospel. This is how you ought to live. And then we get to chapter 6. I, you know, I'm going to skip over what we have in, that we're going to look at because we're going to look at the first four verses. But just peek down the page in your Bibles, and you'll see that God, that uh, Paul is instructing how the gospel changes even the master-slave relationship. And then we end with that that great end of the chapter talking about our confidence to engage in spiritual warfare through the armor of God. And if you you need more lessons on that, Breck has taught an entire class on it, so there's it's available somewhere. And if not, corner him; he'll he'll talk to you until you you walk away about it. Uh, but these are gospel imperatives for each of us that we have ways to be understanding what the gospel has done to us and what it now requires of us and how it changes our lives. So we want to look at these first four verses of chapter 6. And again, I think these are some of the most glorious verses on parenting that we have in Scripture. Let's look at them and read them together. I've got, a, I think, about three points with a couple of subpoints underneath each of them. But here's what it says. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you, that you may have a long life in the land. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Look, I, I want you to notice first the clearly defined line of authority that God has established here. There, there's a clear line of authority that's hidden in the very first part of the, in verse 1 of this, of this chapter. Paul leads with this imperative uh, towards children. Children. And, and we would rightly conclude he is speaking foremost to them. And he is. 
And we ought to remind our children that Paul, that, that God, through his servant Paul, is giving them an imperative sentence, right? You shall. Children, you children, do something here. Children, obey your parents. But this command flows from uh, flows upward into the chain of authority. It, it starts with the least amount of authority and then proceeds to the greatest amount of authority. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. There's the chain of authority right there. Children, Lord, uh, sorry, children, parents, Lord. You got that chain of authority that goes on there. If you want to reverse it, it's Lord, parents, children. Now, you can argue with me if you want about this line of authority, but you're going to have to get through Paul first to do it. There is a chain of authority that is clearly put forward here. Children, parents, Lord. The children are told to do something here. Namely, they are told to obey your parents and to honor your father and mother. Paul is just pulling forward this indicative from the Ten Commandments. And he declares that children are still subject to this command of obedience. Uh, and this new imperative uh, is in the, in the New Testament. This, this new imperative is, is here and it still exists because of Christ. Their job as children is very simple, or at least simply stated, their job is obedience. Hey, God, hey children, obey. Obey whom? Your parents. But the thing is, as Paul David Tripp observes, uh, no parents know that your children do not know what true obedience looks like. It's your job to clarify this for them. Obedience, he says, is a, a willing submission of my heart to the authorities that God has placed in my life. Uh, that is to say that God has pointed your children to the appropriate authority for them to render their obedience to their parents. Children, obey your parents. Now, it's appropriate for young people to be submissive to and obedient to older people. That, that's good. But the command here is that my children obey me. Your children obey you. Children obey your parents, not their parents. Their job is to obey your parents. Their job is to obey the authority that God has put over them in their lives. And in specific, it is your parents. So you as parents have authority that is to be obeyed over your children. There are numerous authorities to which we owe our obedience. We could owe obedience to our elders in this church, our bosses at work, members of law enforcement, the state. A child is divinely commanded, though, to render the first and greatest act of human obedience to their parents. This obedience of a child to his parents is a foreshadowing of something more than just earthly submission to authority. Uh, this is not a behavior modification program that Paul is insisting upon here. A child who acts in obedience is a child whose heart is being shepherded. And a parent who acts in obedience in that authority is a parent who takes seriously the duties of shepherding the heart of his children. Albert Barnes is a great commentator that I rely upon uh, because I have his books on my shelf, uh, but also because he's actually really good. Uh, he puts it this way. No child that is disobedient to a parent will be obedient to God. And that child that is most obedient to a father and mother will be most likely to become a Christian and an heir of heaven. And it may be observed in general that no disobedient child is virtuous, prosperous, or happy. This then is why we are so consistent and insistent as parents that our children follow God's command to obey their parents. 
we're not after whether they go to bed at 8 p.m. without crying or whether they eat their vegetables over dinner. And yet we insist upon that obedience because we're after their hearts. This is, this is not just obedience in the big things. You know, pursue Christ in faith and in baptism. Let me disciple you. Those are all the big things that we hope and pray each of our children succeed in. But we require obedience in the little things over and over and over again. Precisely because establishing authority early in the little things is doing gospel work that is going to, we, we hope and pray, at least is putting them in the position to yield gospel fruit in the end. Here's how Paul David Tripp puts it again. He says, those little moments are profoundly important because the resistance by our children, the resistance is not coming from their thoughts about food or sleep, but from hearts that will tend to resist all authority but their own. Be thankful for these little moments. Don't look at them as bad moments of parenting, as hassles and interruptions. These are the good moments of parenting. These are moments of grace. These are the moments of grace. That little argument, that little insistence that your children, child obey you, that slow obedience is no obedience, whatever that applies to, these are the moments of grace for you as a parent toward your child. So do not give up in that good doing, that well-doing. What was the phrase? Don't, don't grow weary in that. God has given you these little moments to insist upon their obedience, that they will grow in greater obedience. We aren't trusted with big things first. We're entrusted with little things. And those grow to be big things. The same is true for your kids as well. Children are to obey their parents and to honor them, yet the authority that parents possess is not an unlimited authority. Uh, Paul's admonition, admonition to children is to render their obedience to their parents in the Lord. Uh, that is directed less at our children and more at those to whom the obedience is required. That's to you and I as parents. In our human agency, we certainly have legal authority over our children. We have the lawful right to direct their upbringing. But God is less concerned with how the state views our parenting, what it allows for us to do in parenting. He is more concerned with how we exercise the authority that God has granted to us as parents. We exercise an authority that comes from and points our children to God himself. The obedience, their obedience, is less to us as parents, though it is, but is less that, and more rightly, it is their obedience to God himself. And this, as we've observed before, is an awesome responsibility. If you view yourself as just requiring obedience because I am important, and let's face it, at some human level, we all will find our way to say you will obey me because I am important, we're viewing this very poorly. And in fact, you're going to tend towards some very angry, arrogant ways of parenting that are going to be, frankly, damaging to our children. But if we are able to, to, to view this as an authority that comes from God and the child's rebellion against me is not, not their rebellion against me because I'm an important person, you should obey me. It's that their heart is rebellious to the God who created them. And their rebellion is not to me, but to the God who created them. And my job merely is to say, son, daughter, you are disobeying the very God who created you. You can rebel against me all you want. It will, it will harm my psyche some. I will go in my room and cry a little bit, but I'll get over it. 
But your sinful heart, if you keep that rebellion up, it will not go well with you on this world and certainly not in the next one. Our authority is lost when once we command obedience to anything that is not commanded by God. So our, our authority is limited. Their job is to obey in the Lord. Our authority is lost when we command obedience to anything not commanded by God. Uh, and this is just consistent with what Paul has just said in, in, in chapter 5. This is much like a wife's duty of obedience to her husband. That stems from the authority that he has given God in Ephesians 5 and is lost when he veers outside that rightful employment of that authority, of that husbandly authority. Uh, the same is true with our children's obedience. It's tethered to that which is in the Lord. Uh, think of it this way. Christ would not command his church to do that which God does not approve. In the same way, a husband cannot command his, the, the obedience of his wife in things the Lord does not accept. And, and moving further down the chain of authority, a parent cannot command the obedience of a child in that which is forbidden by God. Children are to obey their parents in the Lord. God has established that authority, not man, and our children must know that when they disobey us, they do so at their own peril. It may be that as a parent, I have insisted on obedience outside the commands of God. We should be regularly checking our own hearts in this, this manner. Or we've, we've, we've insisted on obedience in a way that would displease God. This is something for us to be sanctified with in and of ourselves. But a child who chooses, seeing the rightful display of authority that God has given to the parents, if they choose to disobey his parents, he or she is doing so at the risk of disobeying God himself. And that has disastrous implications. God has established this parental authority, not ourselves. And it is a rightful authority. The second thing I want you to see from these verses uh, is that we need to see uh, that there is a divine promise that awaits those who respect this authority. Children are to obey their parents in the Lord. Why? Well, Paul answers it right away. For this is right. For this is right. In fact, it's more than that. Paul brings the Old Testament forward. He says that uh, uh, into the church age, that, that this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Well, the children of Israel had a literal land that they, had, they, were, they were tethered to. They were obedient. They were going to remain in the land. And we see how well that worked out for them. Uh, but our children may not have this special land that they're entitled to for their obedience. Uh, but we do see here that there is a special providence that awaits our obedience our honoring of our parents. And here I'm including us because guess what? Y'all are children too. Uh, those of us who have been children at some point and still to this day, we have a duty of, if not obedience, then at least of honoring of our parents. Uh, your children, though, have a duty of, of obedience and honoring of you. And, and if they do so, there is, we're told, a very special providence that awaits them. It will go well with you. This is not a mere prediction of Paul. It's a divinely inspired blessing available specially to those who are, obe are obedient children. Here's Albert Barnes again. It does not relate to obedience to God in general, but it is a particular assurance that they who honor their parents shall have a particular blessing as the result of that obedience. We may still believe that God, in his providence will watch over those who are obedient to a father and mother. If he regards a falling sparrow, he will not be unmindful of an obedient child. If he numbers the hairs of the head, he will not be regardless of a little boy that honors him by obeying a father and mother. By using the authority given to you, insisting that your children respond in obedience to the right exercise of that authority, you're helping your child achieve a special blessing from God that is reserved especially for them.
let me state that in the negative because I want you to make sure you get this point. If you neglect the use of the authority that God has granted to you over your children, if you choose to reject that authority and to rather be liked than to be obeyed, then you hinder your child's ability to receive a very unique blessing from God. They may achieve it on their own, but God has given you the ability, the, the, the command to be the authority in your children's life, life so that they will obey you and that it will go well with them, and they will have a long life on this earth. So if there's no other reason to achieve this divine promise for our children, if for no other reason, then we ought to be about exercising our authority as parents, compelling those who are inclined to rebel from birth to instead submit in obedience to the parents that God has installed over them. But we must be a worthy authority if we are to be obeyed. That's the final thing I want you to note from this passage. It's a special command to especially our fathers, to each of us as dads. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Look, I, I, don't, I think this is aimed at, at dads, but I don't think it absolves moms and they could just be standing there with their arms akimbo, tapping their toe, right? This is still applied to you too, moms. But I think dads have been given a very grave responsibility, and it's in contrast, stark contrast to what the world is going to tell you today. You've been given charge over your family. You are the head of your home. You can argue with that, but you're going to have to argue with Paul and you're going to have to argue with God in order for you to be successful in that. That does not make your wife, the mother of your children, any less valuable or imbued with any less authority as a parent. It makes her different. It makes her a designed complement to your role as husband and father. And you exercise that role as husband with accountability to God himself who's given you that authority. Don't for a moment believe the lie that the spirit of this age preaches to you every moment of every day right now. God created man and woman. Each bears the imprint of his divine image. Both are designed by God for specific responsibilities in the family. And among them, and most dearly here, the biologically male parent, I can't believe I actually have to define it that way, that dad receives a divine command to be a father. So men... Be you careful. And I am one, so I'm preaching this to myself too, guys. I think we have reason to believe that Paul specifically admonishes fathers not to provoke your children to anger precisely because he knows that such provocation must be a common malady for us as men. I think it's probably less a temptation for our wives and much more so for us as men, if we're going to be honest with ourselves. Listen to what Albert Barnes says here again. He says, There is no principle of parental government more important than that a father should command his own temper when he inflicts punishment. He should not punish a child because he is angry, but because it is right. Not because it has become a matter of personal contest, but because God requires that he should do it and the welfare of the child demands it. If you don't like what Barnes says, and listen to Ted Tripp. Uh, you only muddy, muddy the waters when the bottom line is discipline. I'm sorry, you only muddy the waters when the bottom line in discipline is your displeasure over their behavior rather than God's displeasure with rebellion against his ordained authority. Don't muddy the waters. Listen to what James 1, 19 through 20 says. We're not exempt from this as dads, guys. He says, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone, everyone, that would include dads, I'm pretty sure. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For a man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. You see, dads, when, when we provoke our children to anger, we fail to shepherd our children's hearts. Authoritarianism 
is not God-granted authority by another name. It is instead another species of behavioral modification. We do not shepherd our children's hearts by acting as authoritarians. We, ex- we shepherd our children's hearts by exercising God-given authority. We may modify their behavior if we are authoritarian, but look, if we express anger to our kids, they may have their behavior modified. But even a dog responds to our orders that are barked by his master. But no amount of our frustration, no amount of our impatience, no amount of our hubris is going to yield for our children what James says, the righteous life that God desires. That's what we're after. Where this tendency of anger, provocation exists, we are called to root it from our lives and submit it to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to be refined by the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. That is done through the ordinary means of grace, men, through the reading of our scriptures, through our prayer, through the fellowship of believers, through the sharpening of one to another. That's how we submit our lives as dads to avoid this provocation of anger. There's no special parenting effectiveness training that Dr. Gordon Thomas is going to help you with here. There is only the submission of your heart to what God has said of you. So instead of anger, we ought to instead provoke our children to repentance. That is the point of the latter instruction that we see in Ephesians 6.4, that we bring up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I love how the KJV puts it in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You ever hear the old timers use that phrase when they're praying some, the pray that they bring up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? I love that phrase. Our job as parents is, with some emphasis on us as fathers, it's to nurture, it's to admonish, it's to discipline and instruct. You are a professor, a coach, a principal, and spiritual nutritionist all wrapped up into one. Your job is to bring these children up. Don't forget our first lesson about Deuteronomy 6. We're told to walk and seize every moment we have Uh, to teach our children the commands of Christ. Well, this is what Paul is trying to get at here. When we pray, our children see that prayer is important. When When we neglect public worship, we teach our children that church is a thing to be neglected. When we evaluate the world around us through the lens of Scripture, we are teaching our children to learn to turn to Scripture to view their own world. It's impossible for us as parents, and especially as fathers, not to teach our children our own views. We are commanded by God that we teach our children what is right, what accords with sound doctrine and godliness, that we teach them what is truth and how to distinguish truth from error. But why such an emphasis on our children? Uh, Why such primacy on instruction? Well, let's go back to Paul David Tripp. He says this, Your children don't have a clue why they do the things they do. They don't know why they resist you. They don't know why they argue with you. They don't know why you make them angry. They don't know why they think that they know better than you. They don't know why they demand their own way. They don't know why they will put themselves through tension and painful situations in order to fight for a little independence. Your children don't know who they are and why they do the things they do. Your children daily suffer from a lack of spiritual self-understanding. And that, my friends, is why God has given them to you and installed you as the authority over them in their lives. We exercise that authority over the little things, like whether to eat one's asparagus or sit quietly in church or to go to bed when mommy says to. We do all of that because that is how we help hard, stony hearts soften to the call of the gospel upon them. That is why Dr. Gordon Thomas is so bothered by those dare to discipline advocates, I suppose. 
he has a radically different goal than what we have. You can follow his parent effectiveness training. You can actually purchase it online if you want to. Uh, you can sign up for his newsletter and may get the occasional piece of uh, advice that will be helpful to modify the behavior of your child, but that's it. Soon enough, that child with a hardened heart will manifest that rebellion in a different and likely worse behavior. Why? Because Dr. Thomas and his parent effectiveness training is driving parents away from deploying the very authority that God has given them. Potential uh, Parental authority is good. It is good because it is provided by God. God gave us that authority as parents to, the use, to use in the shepherding of our children's heart. Therefore, do not grow weary in exercising that authority. Do not grow lax in insisting that your children respond to you in obedience. Know that the struggle between your authority and their obedience merely reveals the hold that sin has upon their hearts and their need for a Savior. And when you realize that your struggle to submit to the authority of your Savior merely reveals the hold that sin has upon your heart and your need for sanctifying work, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, it should drive you to exercise your authority with great humility, with grace, and with gentleness. I'm going to end with one more quote from Paul David Tripp, and this will be just how we end it since we're well over time. But I think Paul David Tripp, without realizing, is responding to Dr. Gordon Thomas in a great way. He says this, The exercise of God's love never gets in the way of the exercise of his authority. The accomplishing of God's sovereign plan is never interrupted by his exercise of authority. God doesn't get tired of enforcing his rules. He doesn't have bad days when he's angrier and meaner. His divine joy doesn't keep him from doing the hard work of being a faithful, disciplining father. The opposite is true. God is glorious in the utter consistency of his faithfulness to uphold his holy commands and discipline his children, so we too must be like him as his ambassadors. Our children need the security of faithful, consistent, firm, uncompromising, and loving authority, authority that is motivated by and tempered by grace. Go be faithful authorities to your children.